Hi, everyone. Quick plug before we get started. As many of you probably already know who listen to this podcast, we've launched an app. It's called Vivio. It tracks your sleep, nutrition, exercise, and mindset and gives you individualized recommendations on a daily basis on how to get healthier, to improve your well-being, and to perform to your potentials. If you want to check it out, visit vivio.com, V-I-I-V-I-O.com. Thanks so much. Let's dive into this episode. Welcome back. Great to have you here on my podcast where each week I do my best to deconstruct excellence and bring you some of the top minds around health, well-being, and high performance. And this week we are really excited to speak to Dr. Jillian Mandich, who has a PhD from Western University in Health Science. She specializes in health promotion. Her primary areas of research are happiness and health, and her work combines the latest research, practical wisdom, and engagement to help people live happier, healthier lives, which is pretty much what we all need. She's super passionate about her research. She's the founder of the International Happiness Institute of Health Science Research. She's a research associated at the World Database of Happiness based out of Aramis University in Rotterdam. She's a co-lead investigator of the Canadian Happiness at Work study and is a part and is part of the meant to prevent research team at SickKids Hospital in Toronto where I've gotten to know her. She appears regularly in the media on shows such as The Social, Marilyn Dennis, Breakfast Television, The Morning Show and CBC News and she has just been tremendously helpful for trainers around the world. She's spoken at CanFit Pro. She was the 2020 Canadian presenter of the year. She's given two TEDx talks, The Surprising Truth About Happiness and the Two Things You Need to Know to Be Happier Today. So super excited to bring this conversation with you. Who doesn't want to be happier? We all need to know evidence-based research that can help us to do that. So without any further delays, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Jillian Mandich. Jillian, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Hi, it's so happy to be here. So let's go back to the origin story. How did you get involved in what you're doing now? It's so fascinating. We'll dig into it. But what is your origin story? How'd you get into the field? So, so I'm a happiness researcher. And, you know, sometimes I think about, it's not like when I was in high school, I sat down with my guidance counselor and kind of said, you know, when I grow up, I want to research happiness. Like, in all honesty, I didn't even know that was a thing. Um, but I've always been passionate about health and wellness my entire life. So my original plan, because I was good at math and science and I liked health was to go to medical school. And so I did an undergrad degree at Western in health science and I studied health promotion. And then when my gut, something in my gut was like not sitting right with me going to med school. So I ended up deferring, um, for a year to get some work experience. And I remember Workopolis, this I'm dating myself now. Yeah. So I went on Workopolis and I typed in the word health and I just looked for a job in London, Ontario, where I'm from, something in the field to get experience. And I ended up being a research assistant at the Middlesex London Health Unit. And when I was there, I thought, wow, research is really fun. And so I thought, you know what, instead of going to medical school, I'm going to go back to Western and do a master's. So that's what I did. Um, and when I was at the health unit, I was doing a lot of diabetes research with child and family health, type two diabetes prevention. And so I did a master's degree in child and youth health, um, studying childhood obesity specifically. And then I went into my PhD, still studying childhood obesity. And halfway through my degree, right after my comps, I 
I started thinking about what I was studying and I was having these like really heavy feelings because when for my comps, I looked at parent and family focused interventions to address childhood obesity. And uh, basically, they're not really that effective. And especially if you look at like a six or 12 month follow up, uh, there's no they kids oftentimes will go back to baseline. And so I started thinking and I was using BMI as a cutoff for inclusion in my study as well. And I started thinking, why am I using weight as a metric to determine if somebody can be in my study or not? Because you can be overweight and obese and be healthy. And you cannot be overweight and obese and not be healthy. So I started looking into, okay, well, what else matters in terms of our health? And I like stumbled on happiness research and started researching it and realizing that, wow, like happiness and health are highly correlated. And a piece of our happiness is a skill-based learned behavior. So I ended up switching my PhD topic two years in and added an extra year to my school. But um, now I'm so happy studying happiness. I love learning about different ways that we can improve our happiness, look at different ways to study happiness, measure happiness. Um, so that's where a lot of my work focuses now. That is so wild that almost by accident, you discovered the true interest and your true passion. But at the same time, I'm also fascinated by like when you described, I had a sensation of happiness or doing med school wasn't sitting well with me. And mm -hmm. to trust your gut that early on in our career isn't, isn't easy. So how did you do that? Like when, what was that thought process like where you're like, Hmm, I'm doing this thing. I've always wanted to do it, but maybe there's something else. Cause that's, that's just interesting to me. Yeah. You know, I've actually kind of, I've thought about this because I really think I just was so naive at the time that I didn't think to overthink it. And so I wasn't so in my head as I am now. Um, but also like the added layer of complexity of what I went through is my mom um, has a PhD uh, in kinesiology uh, from Western and she is a prof. Uh, she's the director of the School of Occupational Therapy now. And so my goal when I went back to do my master's was to be a professor like my mom. Because I always thought my mom had such a great job. She was able to go to my soccer games. She was home on weekends. We got to go to her work sometimes and participate in cool studies. So I thought, you know, that was the best job ever. So for me to um, to go into research was, in a way, um, I had my mom there who was someone that showed, was really a model of of what research could be and the type of life that you could have when you do that. So I think that that helped too, because um, I had a lot of support from her when I, when I went back, but it's interesting though, you know, sometimes we follow our gut and we look back and are able to sort of see things a certain way, but in that moment, um, without knowing it's interesting when we make the decisions that we do. Yeah. Trust your gut. That's our first takeaway from this chat. That's awesome. <laughs> um, what is happiness? Oh, so this is, this is the interesting conversation because, I mean, happiness is very hard to encapsulate into words. It's like love, right? Like how do you actually take something? And I feel like, you know, the human language often falls short in so many ways when we try to put language onto a feeling. Um, at the same time, as a happiness researcher, what do you do at the beginning of your study? You have to define your terms. So uh, the best definition that I can find, which is one that's commonly cited in the literature, actually comes from uh, Dr. Sonia Lubomirsky, who is a leading happiness researcher from California. And she describes happiness as the experience of joy, contentment, and positive well-being combined with a sense that one's life is good, meaningful, and worthwhile. So I like this definition because it kind of 
speaks to two pieces of happiness. One that sort of in the moment piece, but then the other piece that's more meaning purpose, that that sort of longevity piece. Um, if you want to get really dicey when you look in the literature, there are so many definitions from like, you know, in the moment happiness to, you know, more like uh, more hedonic happiness. There, there are a lot of different types, but for me, you know, oftentimes I think it's so much more than the definition. And if each and every one of us has slightly different words, whether you want to call it contentment or positive well-being or subjective well-being, there's so many words for it. I think at the end of the day, how we feel and how we define it for ourselves um, is, is kind of the most important part because we're the one that's the judge of how happy we are or not. I love it. You know, when I, I'm a physiologist, so I remember early on in my research, uh, I was investigating thresholds for aerobic capacity and I looked up aerobic threshold and it was like 35 definitions of this one thing. I was like, oh my gosh. So now what do I do? But you're right. We begin with the definitions and the idea of like joy, contentment, well-being, uh, good, meaningful and worthwhile are really awesome. Like that, I just hear those words just makes me happy. But it's also interesting to consider like what is your definition of happiness is there is there anything that you've discovered that helps people to uncover what happiness means for them? You know, what's interesting, um, I've had, I had this experience happen so many times that I really had to stop and reflect. So before COVID, um, when I was doing either one-on-one -on -one interviews with research participants, or I was doing a focus group, um, you know, with like six to 10 um, participants, oftentimes these were undergraduate students because they're easy to recruit when you're at a university. And I would ask, the question, you know, are you as happy as you think you possibly could be? Mm. And I did not have a participant ever say, yes, I do. Every single person said, yeah, you know what? I think I could be happier. And I, I know that's true for me. Um, and so then the next question that I would ask is what makes you happy? And this, this weird pattern was emerging where one of two things happened. So either the participant responded like before they started their exhale, like it was a reflexive response. My mom, my dog, my cat, my sister, my brother, or there was like a very long pause and the participant really had to think about it. And this kept happening. It kept happening. And so I started thinking about it. I'm like, what's going on? And then I thought, hmm, no wonder we're not as happy as we can be if we don't even really know what makes us happy. Either it's so reflexive that we aren't really giving a lot of our thought or our cognition to it, or we actually really have to think about it because we often don't ask ourselves that question. And then we wonder why we're not happy. Uh, and so I think this is a, such a great place to start is really figuring out what is it in our life that makes us happy? Um, and nobody can answer that for us, but us. And so that's kind of the, the fun, exciting part is, is figuring that out. Judith and I, have, Judith, my wife and I have been talking at length almost every night after the kids go to sleep because you can't have a conversation when your kids are awake. Um, speaking of happiness. Um, just about like, because so much has been taken away in this COVID era, mm -hmm. we're like, so what do we want to put back into our life mm -hmm. as we quote unquote return to normal or reimagine the future? Yeah. And it's oh, like that. some yeah. really interest. Yeah, I don't want to return to normal. I don't think mm -hmm. that's a good goal. I think reimagining the future and yeah. deliberately crafting a future is a much better way to go. Um, we've had some really interesting discoveries and sort of like an increased awareness about what makes each of us happy. And mm -hmm. looking back now, I'm like, oh yeah, no, that's why I was frustrated at that time. I was like, oh, I didn't have access to X, mm -hmm. um, usually like my bike or whatever, mm -hmm. right? So um, it's interesting that we need to take 
the time to ask ourselves that question: What makes you and what makes you happy? And it's it's super interesting that people go into either reaction, which is you know this plus is this, or they're like, I have absolutely no idea. I got to think about that one. That's mm-hmm. really fascinating. Yeah, and you know when when we stop to think about it too. I mean, what makes us happy changes throughout our life, right? If I can think about what makes me happy when I was sixteen versus now, what'll make me happy when I'm a hundred? Uh, it, it changes. It's really this fluid thing, just like we change throughout our life. So it's not even like a you figure out the question and then you're good. It's an ever evolving right. answer, and and so I think that you know, a lot of times, you know, I'll have people ask me, okay, Jillian, well, how do I figure out what makes me happy? Like, how do I know? And add to that the complexity of we were never actually taught how to be happy. So no wonder, like in school, we learned math and we learned science and history and geography, but nobody taught us how to be happy. So no wonder we don't know. Like part of it is just having this awareness around this conversation and starting to have these conversations, um, which hasn't happened as much in the past. Like even the scientific study of happiness is a relatively new field. Um, you know, only in the past, you know, 20 or so years are we seeing this huge emergence in publications, um, scientific publications in particular on happiness up until, you know, I think the first publication about happiness was 19, it was the 1960s, but really it didn't start emerging until the end of the 80s. So up until then, no researcher ever thought what's right and how do we make it better? Every piece of work was around what's wrong and how do we fix it? So this shift that we're seeing and the growth that we're seeing, I think is a really exciting, uh, it's a really exciting time to to be living and to be learning. It, yeah, it's this amazing shift towards positive psychology and mm-hmm. things like exploring what makes us happy instead of what's negatively affecting your mindset. So that's, that's super cool. Mm -hmm. What difference do you think does that make when we put our attention towards positivity versus focusing on what's wrong? How does that help us or not? You know, I mean, I think there's a time and a place for both, you know, sometimes what's not working can be an indication of things that we need to change or stop doing or do less of or do something differently. At the same time, you know, I think choosing to have a realistically optimistic view of the world, a lens that we view the world, um, can be very beneficial, even in terms of our physical health. Um, you know, optimism is, is highly correlated with even physical health indications. But at the same time, I think that's not to say that we walk through the world with rose-colored glasses, where we put our blinders on and we just focus on the positivity and we don't look at some of those difficult times. Like there really is a time and a place for both. And at the same time, for me, what I really focus on is being realistically optimistic and trying to see mm. things for what they are with a positive spin. Um, and when that is the lens that you view the world, then it changes your experience because, you know, in, in one situation, we can look at a situation from so many different perspectives and have different um, outcomes or different sort of uh, experiences of the same situation. And so I think that, you know, if, if we get one shot at life, of which we do, and we want to make it the best, you know, that's the thing that I'm most passionate about. Like health promotion has always been the through line in all of my work because, how do I live my best life? What can I do or learn or whatever it needs to be in order to make this shot the best shot I possibly can? And so I think that from that sort of perspective, which is how I choose to live my life, then 
choosing to to look for the good and to try to look for the positive um, has been really, really a, a small shift in a way, but also like a very profound shift in terms of how I even go about the world and see the world and, and do what I do and choose to look at and pay attention or surround myself in my environment with different things. Isn't it interesting that when we do that, like when we start to focus on happiness or um, optimism or positivity, that it mm-hmm. actually affects our physical health? Yeah. You know, I think that, so what's interesting, um, so I do a lot of speaking. Now I speak to my computer all the time, but before COVID, a lot of in-person Talk to your camera, speaking, right? talk, talk yeah. to your webcam, right? Got it. <laughs> exactly. Um, so before COVID, when I would go in, I do a lot of like corporate work. So I would go in and do, you know, a keynote or a lunch and learn or whatever. I would essentially have to build a case for happiness. So I would come in and I would say, I have a PhD in health science and happiness and health are highly correlated. And when you look at workplace outcomes, for example, you know, happier people are more productive, the better problem solvers are more creative. And so I would essentially spend the first part of my talk building a case for why it was important to focus on happiness and why happiness was more than just a feel good in the moment feeling. And since COVID, I don't have that conversation anymore. We all are getting it. We all are living and breathing in ourself and in our family and our colleagues and our friends, this additional level of awareness, heightened awareness of mental health, of happiness, of how profound and important that is in our life. And when we don't have it, we're starting to ask the questions of how how do we do this? How do we create more? Can we create more? And so seeing that shift, I think is really exciting because now I don't have to build a case. People are asking, what what do we do? What is the research telling us? What does the data say? What can I actually do um, to improve my happiness? Because I get it now more than I, more than I ever have. There was an article in the New York Times this week about languishing, this sort of Mm. middle ground between not being completely uh, in the dark around your mental health and not being happy either. Mm -hmm. It's this middle. We're just languishing. We're not. Mm -hmm. There's. It's sort of empty or it's a fog. Um, And so, to you know, as you were speaking, it's it's funny that we've all sort of landed in this place where we're asking ourselves these questions based on a shared common experience of. Mm -hmm universally struggling with burnout, anxiety, fatigue, fatigue. Um, it, it's, it's super, well, what were you, what, what's your thought on, on that concept or where, where the world is at right now? Yeah. You know, so when I first started studying happiness, one of my goals, when I was doing some self-reflection, one of my goals was I thought, okay, you know, I asked myself like, Jillian, are you as happy as you possibly could be? And my answer was no. And so I thought, well, I'm a researcher. Those are my skills. So why don't I figure it out? I don't want to feel any of these challenging emotions that I experience sometimes. I don't want to feel anxiety. I don't want to feel down or depressed. I don't want to feel angst. Like, I don't want to feel these things. I don't want to feel sad. So why don't I study happiness and figure out how I can make myself happy? And what I quickly learned was that the goal is not to be happy all the time. And that was really eye-opening for me because allowed me to sort of understand this, this palette of human emotions that are all in certain times healthy in terms of our psychological functioning. And so when I started to realize that, the other thing I realized was that happiness and sadness are not two ends of the same continuum. So they're separate constructs. So you can be more happy and less happy or more sad and less sad. And you can even experience both at the same time. It's called like the bittersweet emotion. So once I started, right? Once I started to realize that, and and there's actually research sort of often in the literature called like the dark side of happiness. So people that 
like put on their blinders and single-mindedly, like narrow-mindedly focus on happiness. Like their goal is to be happy all the time. Those people are actually less happy than other people, which is surprising until you actually stop to unpack it a little bit. Because if you think about it, you can't be happy all the time. That's not possible. So if that's my goal, I have set a goal that is so unrealistic and so unattainable that I will never achieve it. And so now I'm going to start feeling worse about myself because I'm now not meeting my goal, even though my goal is completely unrealistic. So where I've gone um, learning all of this is really recognizing that, you know, feeling emotions, whatever they are, feeling them fully, not blocking them, not ignoring them, not pushing them away, but instead, you know, welcoming the full spectrum of human emotions. And it just becomes a question of not marinating in some of those low moments for an extended period of time. So like if you're having a bad day and I want to eat, um, you know, I want to eat something and watch the notebook and have a good cry, then I'll do that. But I'm not going to do that for a month. Right. Um, you know? <laughs> I don't know if anyone can watch the notebook for a month. I think a lot of people can <laughs> identify with that right now. Anyway, carry on. Yep. Good. So I just think that part of the conversation and a lot of my work really focuses on let's talk about what is happiness and understand that it's not the goal. Like people always say to me, especially like I would find um, when I did in-person media interviews, like before COVID, you know, you do the chit chat before and after. And then oftentimes they would say, oh, Jillian, like you must be happy all the time. And I always say, I'm like, no, I'm not. And that's not the goal. And I don't want to be, and I don't want you to be, and I don't want my family or my friends to be because that's not the goal. So part of the work here is really starting to understand how happiness fits into this bigger equation or puzzle of, of life. And yes, there are times where happiness is amazing and it can be a really great time in our life. And we have other times too. And sometimes going through some of the more challenging or difficult things, it tests our character. It, you know, it may show us a strength that we never thought was possible. So there's just that, that mindset shift from of knowing it's okay to not be happy all the time. And in fact, that's not the goal was so freeing for me because then I began to shift the conversation into, you know, really embracing the, the palette of, of emotions I've experienced. I really love the idea of welcoming the full spectrum of human mm -hmm. emotion, but not marinating in it. Mm -hmm. I really love that idea because unless you've experienced sadness, you don't really truly appreciate what feeling happy is like. And if you're happy all the time, it's got to be boring. Yeah. There's no challenge. There's no risk. There's no downside. So there's no it's sort of like the idea of, you know, living forever. So mm -hmm. I think that the fact that we all die lends some importance to our day-to-day -day activities that mm -hmm. sharpens your life if you're aware of that. And the idea yeah. that it's just okay to go up and down and backwards and forwards and around is is all right. Like that's a super freeing idea. It really is. Like sometimes you know, I think about happiness like a sheet of music. Because like if you look at a sheet of music, there's high notes and there's low notes. And I mean, there's even spaces in between the notes. And I don't think those are like gaps in between things that are important, right? A lot of times we need quiet, we need downtime, we need high notes, we need low notes. And if you look at a sheet of music and there was just one high note played the entire time, like a happy note, it would just sound like one long continuous tone. Like that doesn't even sound good. So when we can sort of reframe happiness and look at it more like a symphony, right? This collective um, points that create beautiful music. That's kind of the goal for me for my life. It's not to just play one happy note all the time because that doesn't even sound good. Life as a symphony. How cool is that? Like just as a concept, right? To yeah. 
allow the highs and the excitements, but then also to lean right into the lows and the drama. Like that's super cool. Yeah. And I mean, it, it really like, it takes the pressure off of us. You know, I think sometimes like we're already so hard on ourselves, and there's already so much. And so when we can take a step back and, and embrace what we're feeling and get in touch with it. And at the same time, what I think is really cool is so the sort of first generation, let's call it, of happiness research that came out um, was a big proponent of this idea of a hedonic treadmill. So basically, we're going and we might get a little happier or a little less happy, but we kind of get back to baseline, almost like a thermostat, like you said, in your house, right? It might get a little bit warmer, but then it'll go back to room temperature or cooler and then back. And so this was kind of the initial idea about happiness was that, yeah, we might have these bursts from time to time where we get happier and then we kind of go back to baseline. And now um, from the best available evidence that we know is that, no, that's actually not the case. So yes, there is a genetic element to happiness. Yes, there is an environmental element. I think we can all understand and appreciate that from this past year. And there's another piece, this third piece that is really significant. And that's the piece that's up to us. So that's like our thoughts, our actions, and our behaviors. So when we think about what's amenable to change or what's easiest in terms of behavior change, like we can't change our genetics, right? Like maybe gene expression, but like, that's really hard. Um, environment, again, we could change it. You went out to BC, right? So it's possible, but again, very hard. And then there's this other piece, our thoughts, our actions, our behaviors. And so by focusing on that, we can not only increase our happiness, we, it is possible to sustain it at a higher level. So the way I think about it, it's almost like if you, want, if you want to get strong, you go into the gym and you exercise and you use your muscles and over time you get stronger. So if you think about happiness like a muscle, you can essentially do the same thing. And by focusing on our thoughts, our actions and our behaviors, we can strengthen that muscle. And then so what happens is it's not about getting rid of the lows like we talked about. What happens is that our highs get higher and our lows get higher. So we see, start to see this sort of positive uptrend of emotions. So everything is still there. It's just getting higher, both the lows and the highs. I love that. So set point rises. Yeah. You still have this peaks and valleys, but the valleys are where the peaks were and yeah. on and on and on. That's exactly. so cool. I talk a lot about act, think, feel as mm -hmm. a strategy to enable you to perform under pressure. So it's cool that you brought up thoughts, actions, and behaviors because that's mm -hmm. very related and it's absolutely controllable by us. And you talk about taking the pressure off of ourselves and controlling what you can control to actually improve your happiness and mm -hmm. changing your thinking, taking certain actions and executing certain behaviors is a way of improving happiness. Is that a, is that a reasonable interpretation of what you just explained? Absolutely. And I mean, even if you look at, you touched on the control thing. So, you know, in research, we call it autonomy, right? Where we focus on the things that we can control. And when we look specifically at autonomy and how it relates to happiness, Ha autonomy is more a of a, a more significant contributor to our happiness than how good looking we are, how popular we are, how much money we have, or how good our sex life is. So yeah, it's a lot because I think all four of those things can make us happy, right? And so autonomy actually is a more significant predictor of our happiness. So you're it's almost like your um your confidence plays a role, your self-efficacy plays a role. Your decision-making takes a role mm -hmm. uh, and yeah. all of that can help us feel like we can change our happiness if we need to. Yeah. And, and it's an empowering thing to know that, 
you know, life doesn't just happen to us and happiness isn't just luck that we come across sometimes. Uh, sometimes it is. And sometimes we can actually create it for ourselves and we can do things that we like or enjoy. And we can, you know, focus on, especially like some of our, our thoughts and what we're thinking and how we're viewing the world. And that can be very influential in shaping not only what we think, but how we feel. What are your thoughts on the research? I think it was from Harvard. It came out a couple of years ago where happiness is related to your income up to about $75,000, beyond which it's no longer correlated with happiness. Is that, I'm sure I'm butchering that Mm -hmm. because I I saw it in a Harvard email or something like that, but what are your thoughts on that relationship? So it's messy, like from a data perspective, from the research perspective, it's very messy and there's a lot of fighting around this concept. Um, So uh, what you're referring to is basically and researchers in the UK did something similar, but it was in pounds and I forget what the conversion is. But basically, right. um, the idea is that up to a certain level, my, my, more money makes you happier. And then once you kind of your basic needs are met, so you're not worrying about how you're paying your rent or your mortgage or your groceries or things like that, more money doesn't bring you more happiness. And so my personal opinion on that is that makes sense right? If, if I'm stressed about how I'm paying my bills, like if I think of sometimes when I was in grad school, right? It's stressful when you're trying to figure out how to pay oh your God, bills. Oh God, that was awful. Anyway, yeah, carry so on. <laughs> I get it. Yeah. It, it stressed me out. And so, yeah, that affected my happiness. Um, at the same time, I can also see, you know, people that make 1 million now want to make two and want to make three and then they want a bigger house and more houses and more cars or boats. Or, like it's, it's sort of this never ending cycle potentially. Um, so yes, the, the one thing that is interesting though, is that research has shown that when we use money to buy time that can increase happiness. So, um, whether that be, you know, we have someone clean our house. And so that time that we spend money to do that saves us time and that can bring happiness. So it's kind of this like convoluted thing. Um, but buying time and buying experiences. That's the other one that's been pretty well documented where, um, you know, even if you're getting a gift for somebody, uh, trying to get them something experiential. So whether that be creating something that you can go to together when it's safe to do stuff with people or, um, you know, going to a play or a movie or having a virtual dinner, knowing that when we spend our money to create an experience with somebody that can have a much more positive impact on our happiness than, you know, buying somebody a new shirt or something, for example. I love the idea of buying experiences, not things. Mm-hmm. I think that's very much been sort of my life story up until now as much as possible. And yeah, I look at some of the times where I had the least money. It was when I was cycling across Africa for five months. I had no home in Canada. I just finished grad school. I was totally in debt. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I used the last $10,000 on my student line of credit to go to Africa for five months oh, wow. and ride my bike and live in a tent on the side of the road. And uh, it's funny that even though that was one of the hardest times, the most physically difficult and mentally and emotionally sometimes too, you know, when you're sleeping in orphanages with uh, the AIDS survivors, you know, like it's rough. But at the same yeah. time, I was so happy as well during that time so it's it's super interesting that that really exploring that relationship is fascinating the idea of using money to buy time using money to buy experiences that's what leads to happiness not Mm -hmm. the things which is what we probably think of when we think of buying happiness yeah exactly and i think what's interesting too is that 
we're pretty good as humans at assessing how happy we are. So if, if I asked you right now, like, you know, Dr. Greg, like on a scale of one to 10, how happy are you? What would you say? Uh, probably right seven to eight. Okay, perfect. But so, you're not allowed you know, to choose seven, so I'll take eight. There all right. Go. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so, you know, we, we check in with that. We don't judge. We just have awareness around whatever the number is for us. And if I was to take one of my fancy tools that I use in research, you know, like the Oxford Happiness Index, and I administer the, the tool to you and it's been validated in the literature and I, I get an answer after you filled out several questions and I figured out your score. Chances are what I came up with will be pretty close to what you just told me. So as humans, we're pretty good at assessing how happy we are. Our self-reported happiness is probably pretty accurate. What we're not as good at as humans is figuring out what it is that makes us happy. So often we think it's like the big shiny moments in our life that bring us happiness or, you know, like the new car or whatever it is, or we think that, you know, I will be happy when fill in the blank, those things are what make us happy. But research teaches us that it's actually the sum of small joys throughout our day that actually cumulatively add up to a happier life. They kind of create these, what we call, you know, upward spirals of positive emotion. And if you actually add up and sum up the time of these seemingly small, I'm using small in terms of like time, not in terms of impact, because often those little things can actually be very, very impactful. That's actually what adds up to a happier life. So it's, you know, sort of shifting the question from, you know, what are these big things to make us happy and really understanding that, no, it's asking myself throughout my day, where are my opportunities to create these small bursts of joy? What can I do, you know, throughout the day here and there to give me those boosts? Because that is actually what adds up to more happiness in our life. Small bursts of joy, the sum of small joys and sprinkling those throughout the course of the day. Super yeah. cool, totally accessible, absolutely achievable where... <laughs> you know, the Lamborghini, probably not in the cards, right? So yeah. that's super cool. Um, as much as I did sit in a Lamborghini once and that was a really cool five minutes, but it's not going to sit in my driveway. I get it. Right. Um, I'm also really curious about what you think about countries like Bhutan that actually measure gross national happiness as the primary goal of that that kingdom versus gross domestic product, which is what North America is all about. What's your thought on that? Just curious. Yeah. Um, I love this conversation because I think it really signifies a, a maturation in the thought process of, uh, of humans. When we can understand that life is more than just like income of a country or a GDP or something like that. Like we're recognizing that our life is more than just like a dollar sign or a number or stuff like that. I, like, I love that this is now part of the conversation because this is fairly new, you know, for countries to have like a, a minister of happiness or even in companies, we're seeing this now where there's like a chief happiness officer. And I love it because I think what it's doing is it's enhancing our experience. It's bringing um, feelings to the forefront. It's, it's extending the conversation beyond the bottom line or ROI, um, which I think this added dimension of life is the where the beauty in life is. And so I think that it's really great. Uh, every year, the World Health Organization, they release on March 20th. So March 20th is the International Day of Happiness. Um, they release a World Happiness Report and they rank like 160 countries across the world in terms of their happiness. And they have you know different algorithms that look at look at things like 
income and, you know, healthcare, social support, uh, fear and security among citizens, so many different factors. And then they rank the countries and the Scandinavian countries always take the top. Like they kind of play around, you know, so Sweden, Finland, Denmark, Iceland, all kind of dance around the top. Um, this year, actually, for the first time, we dropped, I think we're like 11 or 12 now. And the States actually beat us for the first time. So they jumped up and they were actually happier than we are in Canada um, now this year. But I think it's interesting to be able to have those conversations. And then we don't see across the board that the more developed countries are not the only ones in the top. So there's a lot more to the conversation than just dollars. Um, you know, you look at places like Costa Rica, um, third world countries, some of them, it's surprising. You would think that if more money brought us happiness and that was the thing that they would all be at the bottom, but we don't see that. So I think this opens up the conversation to a broader perspective of what does it mean to live a happy life and what do we actually need from ourselves and from our country uh, in order to kind of support that. What's the relationship between happiness and performance? You talk a lot to corporate groups. What's the rationale for helping business people to be happier and actually thinking that that's going to affect their ability to do their jobs? That's a really interesting advance. I'd love your thoughts on that. Yeah. Um, you know, so when we look and you compare happy people to unhappy people, um, happy people are more creative they're better problem solvers. Um, they're more altruistic. They're more likely to volunteer both their time and their money. Um, they are better at being realistic in terms of goal setting um, and, and also goal attainment. They are rated as better liked by their peers. Um, when you look at work evaluations, they tend to be higher. People on teams want to spend more time with them. Um, they tend to get promoted more frequently. They tend to make more money. So we really see a lot. Now, from there, the question becomes, why is that? And it kind of gets into this chicken and egg situation. Like, are happy people just naturally like that? And so they are more well-liked and so they continue that way? Or is there is there more going on in terms of, like, can we actually do something about this, you know? And what's interesting is we can actually, this is a learned behavior. Um, and in a lot of ways, a lot of our happiness is something that it's not a question of we're born with it or not. We can actually um, focus on sort of building that happiness muscle, like I talked about earlier, where we can ask ourselves, what are the things that I can do, these small bursts that I can create through my day? And so when we are able to incorporate more of these moments, it really goes beyond just how we're feeling in the moment. Even like, well, think about it. Would you want to work with somebody that's happy or somebody that's miserable? <laughs> right? or something All that's day long. Absolutely. And, and it's, it's infectious. And it's so infectious, actually, that research out of Harvard found that our happiness actually spreads three degrees from us. So not only does our happiness affect the people that we meet, um, it affects the people that they meet. And it doesn't actually even have to be in person or on video. Um, there's research that looked at people when they, when they talk on the phone and they smile make more sales and are rated as better liked than people that aren't smiling on the phone. And you can't really tell, but they do find that. So I think that it's it's subtle sometimes, and yet it's very significant in terms of the, the opportunities that we have um, to see benefits in so many areas of our life when we just start to prioritize um, positivity more in our life. One of the things that, um, so I had the incredible opportunity to commentate 2010 and 2012 for Canadian television for the Olympics. And one of the things that um, I got taught relatively early on in that experience was that as they're counting down three, two, one, go live, smile. Mm. And you always want to be smiling when the cameras go on. 
Mm-hmm. And there, I was like, oh, that's really interesting because, and, and so instantaneously, you're putting the entire audience, I guess, at at ease and feeling mm-hmm. better. That's so cool that it spreads three levels too yeah. through the network. Like the impact of this from a world perspective in an, in a time when there's so much burnout and languishing, as we've already discussed, mm-hmm. like just simply contracting the muscles in your face that cause you to smile can have such an impact. Yeah. And what's really cool about smiling too is, so when we smile, I'm sure you know this, right? So muscles fire, both that draw the corners of our mouth up towards our ear and like our obicularis oculi, right? The, the crow's feet muscle, I like to think of it. Don't like to think of it, I guess. Um, so when those muscles fire, it sends signals to our brain and our brain doesn't go, hey, Jillian, why are you smiling? Our brain says, hey, Jillian's smiling. And so then the cascade physiologically from there ensues. And so our brain doesn't ask why. And so sometimes like if I'm going into a meeting or something where I'm not feeling good, I will smile, forcing myself to smile um, in an attempt to start to change my body chemistry. Or actually, I uh, I was really into CrossFit for a while. And uh, at my CrossFit gym, they would post the workouts when we were doing the ones um, for the open. And I was always like, if you looked at the pictures of me doing like box jumps, I was smiling and everybody used to always make fun of me. And they'd be like, why are you smiling doing box jumps? There's no reason smiling during box jumps. I was like, I'm trying to do everything I can to give the best performance I can. So I'm trying to be happy here. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, that's certainly a very good analogy for the entire world right now. I feel like we're all just doing box jumps, but if Mm -hmm. we smile, maybe things will get a little bit better, a little bit faster. Um, I'm sensitive to your time and I, I love everything that we've spoken about. We could, I'm sure, carry on massively. What are you up to these days? Like, what's your, where's your attention? What are you researching? Uh, what's got your, what's got your attention at the moment? So I, uh, I actually just today, um, because I, so I love research, um, especially happiness research, but I, didn't want to be in a university. So, you know, here um, in Toronto, I, I'm at Sick Kids part time. Um, but I also just today joined, um, there's this thing called the World Happiness Database. So it's the largest global database of, um, of happiness research. So I'm now the Canadian um, research associate for that. So I'm excited to sort of take our Canadian data and play with it on a global scale. And I also have been procrastinating successfully for almost two years now writing a book. Um, I, when I was writing my PhD, I graduated in 2019. Um, I, well, as you know, writing a dissertation is a very long, tedious, oh, often boring process. And so I told what motivated, how I motivated myself to get through writing my dissertation was, I said, when you're done, Jillian, you're going to publish this book because although it's not fun to read right now, the content is, is useful and good. And, uh, so then I finished and I was so excited. I got an agent, all the stuff. And the agent was like, hey, listen, like that's not a good enough idea. It's not hooky enough to just say happiness can improve your health and here are some ways to do it. So I just, I've been procrastinating it. And what I realized recently is that if you don't have an idea, you have to start circling the drain. You have to start being in that space. So I am like every morning, wake up and I'm reading research articles, just every sort of space of happiness, trying to get myself in the space so that I can birth a book. So that's what I'm working on. It's coming. It's in progress, but I have no idea what it's going to be. Yet. That's Something awesome. Happiness. <laughs> I actually just signed the contract for my next book today <gasps> as well. And Congratulations. Ab- thank you. Yeah, it's, you're absolutely correct in that you just, you circle the drain and the idea isn't great. Um, this took like six months to come up with a decent idea back and mm-hmm. forth with an editor and just reading the research and throwing ideas out there. And eventually like, 
well, that's a good idea. And then you, then you start going. So keep up the process and you need to, you need to write a book. The world needs to hear what you have to say. So um, do it and it'll have a massive, um, massive effect. So Jillian, if people want to learn more about you or connect with you online, how can they do that? Uh, my website is my name, JillianMandich.com, and it's Jillian with a G. So it's G-I-L-L-I-A-N-M-A-N-D-I-C-H.com. And that's got all the links to all the things. So that's a good hub to go. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your wisdom with us. Everyone needs to be happier and you've totally helped us to do that. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. It makes me happy to talk about happiness. So it's been a joy to talk to you today. Thank you. All right, everyone. I hope that you found that helpful. I certainly did. Dr. Jillian is fantastic. Really lucky to have had a chance to chat with her and share that conversation with you. If that was helpful, please let me know on social at Dr. Greg Wells. Please share the episode with your community. That helps us tremendously. Subscribe on iTunes or Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcast. And if you can give us a review, if you really enjoyed that episode, that would also be absolutely fantastic. That's it for this week. Stay healthy and safe, everyone. And we'll talk to you again soon.